Hello and welcome once again to Wrestling Memories. I'm Glenn Brockett, your host. George Shire is out on assignment this week, but hey, while George is away, I have booked myself a great guest. Oh yes, he's here uh, to talk about not only what he's up to today, including a big event uh, tonight down in Richfield, Minnesota with Steel Domain Wrestling. He's uh, stopping by to share some of his stories, and in particular, the year 1987, the year uh, my guest worked for Vern Gagne's American Wrestling Association. He's no stranger to wrestling memories. He's no stranger to Midwest professional wrestling. He is the voice of Minnesota pro wrestling. He's the one and only Slick Mick Karsh. Mick, it is so wonderful to have you back on wrestling memories, my friend. Glenn, it's been too long. I really appreciate you having me on, especially when George is on assignment. <laughs> yeah, it seemed like the that that the, the timing it just worked a little too too well, huh? <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> well, you know, we're going to be talking about uh, not only uh, 1987 and the your uh, the year you worked for Vern, the period you worked for Vern in 1987, but I want to uh, both do it at the front and the uh, end of the uh, show. I want to talk about the show tonight uh, down there in Richfield, where. Uh, it's going to be a, 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 a Jim Dandy, a Bobby Dazzler, you can call it what you will. Steel Domain Wrestling is uh, going to be live and in the house in Richfield at the American Legion Auditorium. And what is this about a Portland Avenue brawl? Well, this is the third time we've done this Portland Avenue brawl, and it, it, it's kind of a variation on uh, Royal Rumble, Battle Royal, Falls Count Anywhere, everything kind of combined. What we have, we have 10 steel domain wrestlers that get into the ring at the same time. And from there, it's process of elimination by uh, pinfall or submission. There's no disqualification. The caveat, Glenn, is that they can do this anywhere in the building. So you could have, uh, you know, five different matchups <laughs> all over the Richfield American Legion Auditorium. When a guy is pinned or submits anywhere in the building, he's eliminated. Last man is the uh, winner, last man standing, or, you know, however, maybe he's going to be horizontal at that point, but uh, he is guaranteed a Steel Domain Wrestling title match at some point in the future. This is, like I say, it's the third time we've done this, and uh, the first two have just been off the charts. So we're very much looking forward to that, and, you know, that's this is the first time Steel Domain has actually had a triple main event going, so we're really excited about that. Okay, I've given one piece of the puzzle here, uh, Mick. Talk about the, two of the other big matches. I know your champion has uh, been Mitch Paradise, and w what challenge lies ahead for Mitch as we head into tonight's big show? Mitch is going to be wrestling a Steel Domain original, uh, Jay Bradley. Jay is about a 18-year veteran of the sport at this point. Big, tough kid. Um, he wrestled in the Impact Wrestling Organization as Aiden O'Shea. Uh, just a great talent. He came out of the class uh, with CM Punk, Coke Cabana, Adam Pierce, Ace Steel, Adrian Lynch back in the day. And he's a real blue chipper. Very, very tough guy. He's appeared uh, in the last couple of years for Steel Domain Wrestling. And uh, Mitch is... Uh, this is a great champion. He has a tremendous following, but I'll tell you what, this uh, Jay Bradley is a tough guy. And the owner of Steel Domain Wrestling, Ed Hellier, who has all of a sudden become the, the, the modern-day Midwest version of Vince McMahon and Eric Bischoff, all <laughs> rolled into one, uh, Ed is bringing Jay back with the 
ostensibly with the idea that Jay is going to win the championship, become the Steel Domain original to take the title back to Chicago, where SDW originated. So uh, you got two big 270-pound guys going at it, 280, and uh, it'll be it, it's one hell of a matchup, no doubt. All right, setting the table for uh, two of the main event matches. Now, I'm looking here, you're making another first in uh, Steel Domain Wrestling history. Now, this time involves uh, some of the, the lady wrestlers uh, in, in competition. You're bringing back uh, a legend uh, in the uh, the women's wrestling uh, game as well. So tell about who's going to be working in this match. What's the significance of this women's title match? Well, the legend that you're talking about is Malia Hosaka. And she has been in the business literally three decades, wrestled for every major promotion in the country, wrestled all over the world. And it's amazing that she is still at the top of her game after all these years. It's, it's just extraordinary. It's, uh, you know, there, there's no signs of slowing down, no signs of anything like that. She looks great. She will be going against Stacy Shadows, who comes in, uh, from the Wisconsin area, and people who aren't familiar with Stacy or haven't seen her in action, you talk about a tough gal. I mean, <laughs> this would not be your ideal prom date unless you had a death <laughs> wish. Uh, Stacy is just so so tough, and uh, her her career really has skyrocketed. She's already wrestled for Ring of Honor. Uh, you know, the, the the sky is the limit for her. The last time these two met in Richfield, they absolutely tore the house down. They went to a double disqualification, beat the holy tar out of each other, and we figured the only way to do it, and uh, the, the Steel Domain Wrestling uh, Commissioner of the Ladies Division, Don Lemke, said, you know what, let's do this. Let's put them in a false Count Anywhere match, which it's going to be. Uh, also, it's the first time in history uh, of Steel Domain Wrestling, that the ladies will actually be the last match of the night. They are the main event, and also it's for the newly created Steel Domain Ladies Wrestling Championship. So it's going to be tremendous. You put that together with the other two main events and a blockbuster undercard, and uh, it is just going to be off the charts tonight in Richfield. Can't wait for this one. That's at the American Legion Auditorium at 6501 Portland Avenue in Richfield. Doors will be opening up at 6 p.m., bell time at 7. And after all of these Falls Count Anywhere brawls, is there going to be anything left of the American Legion after tonight? Probably not. But, you know, I, I'm sure if there is, if the concession stand is left, I'm sure the Golden Idol will find his way there. Oh, yes. It wouldn't be a Steel Domain show without uh, your buddy, the Golden Idol, to uh, just to remind you just what, what kind of a buddy he is to you in pro wrestling. Oh, he is just, uh, I mean, we're, we're, we're thick as, as thieves, Golden Idol and I. We've had a rivalry, and we've been button heads for literally about 28 years. Uh, back to the Saturday night at ringside days. And talk about a guy who doesn't change over the years. If anything, he's gotten worse. He has been a thorn in my side. He's been a, a thorn in everybody's side uh, for all that time. And and his temple of terror, as he likes to call it, he is running rampant in steel domain wrestling. So the Golden Idol will be there tonight uh, at 7 o'clock. I'm sure he'll get there probably about 3 o'clock and annoy the ring crew and <laughs> You know, maybe the bartender and oh, yeah. veterans uh, of the American Legion, he, he'll be there. 
Okay, well, so, you know, that's going to be coming up tonight. Now, we're going to go get in that old time machine. Uh, I've cleaned it up. I've got it already. The left turn signal works. The turn indicators on both sides work, Mick. We're going to go back in time for you. We're going to take us uh, a little trip back to 1987. And, you know, the year 1987 has a lot of significance, uh, not only for you, of course, which we're going to get into the talk, but it was uh, also the first year... I saw pro wrestling, and it was a 1987 AWA house show in Roseville, Minnesota. So I've always remembered 1987 fondly, even though it was kind of the up and down year for the AWA. But 1987 always has a place in my heart, and I know it has a place in your heart as well. It it certainly does. That was the year that I uh, finally uh, got a chance with Vern Gagne and Greg Gagne to work with the AWA uh, at the Showboat in Las Vegas doing primarily ring announcing, but on occasion they would put me next to Rod Trongard, uh, just a wonderful guy, by the way. Uh, Rod Trongard, we would call the action for, uh, for the AWA doing play-by-play in color in 1987. And, and really, um, by the early part of 1988, that gig was over. But my actual tenure, one way or another, in some capacity uh, with the AWA, went back to, gosh, eons, uh, even before I started doing the announcing for them. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, uh, it was, this must, you know, before you started working with the AWA, you know, you mentioned you already had a history with them. This thing goes back all the way to the to the Dykeman, to the Calhoun Beach, uh, you know, hotel, to the TV tapings at various, various points in the Twin Cities. And man, you were a fan, but you were also one of those guys that wanted to uh, go beyond your seat at ringside. Talk about how you got ended up uh, getting associated uh, with the AWA, your history with them. And what was that like? Uh, I mean, you you went beyond just being a fan. Well, you know, uh, first of all, being born and raised in the Twin Cities in AWA country, um, that was it for me. Uh, the AWA was the be-all, end-all. Up to and including today, I would give anything to go back in time and, and attend an AWA show back in the glory days. But uh, as you said, Glenn, I was a, a huge fan from the time I was nine years old and saw the AWA on television, um, when I was about four, well, maybe 13, 14 years old, I started attending the AWA television tapings at the old Calhoun Beach Hotel, the Calhoun Beach Club uh, in Minneapolis. Uh, every Saturday afternoon, get there early, wait for the wrestlers to come in and, and talk with them. It actually, even before that, I would spend... A lot of my Saturdays at the Dykeman Hotel in downtown Minneapolis, which housed the American Wrestling Association, and uh, go up there and buy programs, and again, sit in the lobby, marking out, as they say these days, when the wrestlers would come in, uh, get their autographs, talk to them a little bit. Um, So it, it was just, it was a passion from day one, and... I always wanted to get involved in the business from a journalistic standpoint. So when I was a teenager, I started putting out some wrestling bulletins. Uh, One of them was called the AWA Wrestling News, and it was about as primitive as you could get. Uh, You know, the old mimeograph machine and, and typing up the results and my opinions of what was going on in the AWA. That was like in the in the mid to late 60s I started doing that. I had a fan club for the Crusher again when he was here in the AWA uh, right after he turned babyface, ran a fan club for him. And then really when the, the wheels started to get in motion 
was in the early 1970s, there was a newspaper in Minneapolis that started out as the Minneapolis Daily Herald and then transformed into the Minneapolis Daily American. They got started when the Minneapolis Star Tribune newspaper went on strike. They wanted to be an alternative newspaper, which they were for a while. But in the 70s, early 70s, I contacted them about the possibility of doing a wrestling column on a weekly basis for them, whether it was features on the wrestlers or covering the, the AWA scene, whatever it might have been. That was kind of a foot in the door for me because the AWA loved the publicity, so they kind of gave me initial backstage access somewhat limited in, in capacity, but that's actually how I got my first foot in the door working for the AWA. Mm -hmm. And, well, you know, we talk about the AWA, uh, and we know of uh, your legendary uh, fan club uh, that you had put together for, for Nick Bockwinkle, the Bockwinkle Brigade, and we, we've had uh, you on before, and we've discussed uh, how important the Bockwinkle Brigade was, but I want to talk not about Nick this time, but I want to talk about how much contact you did have with Vern Gagne prior to the uh, 1987 when you were hired on at the AWA. Did you see a lot of Vern through those years at the Dykeman and beyond as far as like getting up and close? I, yep, I saw him all the time but didn't talk to him. That was the amazing thing, uh, Glenn. My uh, contact with the AWA, my liaison, I guess you can say, was Wally Carbo all the time. And uh, I had known Wally from the time I started hanging around at the Dykeman as a teenager. So he was actually the one that uh, I developed a relationship and a rapport with. He knew that I wanted to get involved in the business itself mm -hmm. in some capacity. Um, and he was always in my corner, always kind of you know going to bat for me. But his hands were really tied because, you know, he, you know, he and Vern may have been partners. Wally was kind of the silent partner. Vern was the more aggressive, uh, kind of egocentric partner. So there was only so much Wally could do as far as getting me involved uh, with the AWA. Uh, but, you know, you, back to your original question, with all the times that I saw Vern at the TV studio or at the Dykeman Hotel, whatever it may, it may have been, I outside of a hello once in a while, and, you know, maybe he knew that I was writing for the Daily, Daily American, maybe he didn't, but we didn't talk to each other. And really the first time that I had any extended conversation with Vern was in 1984 when George Shire and I put on something called Supervention. It was kind of a fan convention for the AWA here in Minneapolis. And uh, George and I then had contact with Vern. He was one of our guests at the banquet that we held. And that was really the first time that I had any uh, you know, like I say, extended interaction with him until I started working for the AWA in 1987. So uh, amazingly, with all the time I was an AWA outsider and then insider, I had minimal contact with Vern until I w actually worked for him. Oh, wow. That is that, uh, you learn something new every day. You know, before the AWA job offer came about, uh, you, you were kind of dipping your toes into the water with, with pro wrestling announcing and the like. Um, you, you did some stuff, uh, some shots with uh, Eddie Sharkey. Let's talk about how you kind of eased into the role of, of a ring announce or announcer, whether it be in the ring or doing play-by-play uh, -play or color in those, those days uh, prior, right before you ended up hooking up with, with uh, the, the, Ameri the American Wrestling Association. Pardon me. Well, 
for that, we're going back to about 1985 or so. Eddie was running his Pro Wrestling America promotion in the Twin Cities and up into Canada. And Eddie was a guy that I had actually known since the middle 1960s, just as a fan and hanging around, uh, would talk with Eddie periodically. The late Ray Webby, uh, who was uh, a journalist and really a character, uh, in the Minnesota sports scene, let alone the wrestling scene. I became good friends with Ray, mm-hmm. and Ray made me aware of the fact that Eddie was running local shows pretty consistently at gymnasiums and nightclubs like George's and Fridley. And he said, you know what, Eddie is thinking about doing television, and he wants to put together a TV crew, and I know you're interested in announcing. Why don't you talk to Eddie and see if maybe he would let you do some play-by-play. Well, it was like an instant connection because I had uh, known Eddie for all those years. So I, I believe it was 85. I started doing some TV. Uh, George was involved back then, too. We would tape matches uh, at some high schools or junior high schools, and again at George's and Fridley with the PWA that eventually aired on cable television. So my first foray into... Wrestling announcing was actually with Eddie Sharkey's uh, PWA. I, I mean, I should tell you, that's all I ever wanted to do from the time I was a kid was become mm-hmm. a wrestling announcer in my own hometown. I idolized Marty O'Neill, the old AWA announcer, and that's what I wanted to do. And I you know, didn't know how to get my foot in the door. So basically it was the old story. If you hang around long enough, you know, either they're going to boot you out or they're going to get so sick of you that they say, all right, sit down. And we'll do this. And uh, luckily, I, I was fortunate enough to hook up with Eddie in '85. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you also uh, they did the uh, you were part of the co-op uh, between uh, Eddie Sharkey and uh, Tony Candela with the West Four Wrestling Alliance. Of course, uh, that was uh, into the big setup for the big Brody Bulldog Bob Brown uh, now infamous uh, Winnipeg Arena match. You know it was, and and again, I have to thank Eddie for that because Eddie was. Uh, working shows with Tony Condello, who promoted up in Winnipeg. Tony Condello actually had wrestled in the AWA in the 1970s. He was an enhancement talent and used the name Tony Savoldi while he was wrestling in the AWA. But uh, Eddie was going up to Winnipeg with his PWA crew on occasion. And so he brought George and I, again, George and I kind of had like a, a linear path there for a while. Uh, he brought us up to Winnipeg starting in 1986, and we went up and did some TV there. And I got to tell you, when we first went up there, uh, it was, man, it, it, it was pretty brutal, some of the guys that we had to put over. Uh-huh. Uh, you mentioned the, the, the Bob Brown, Bulldog, or Bulldog Bob Brown, Bruiser Brody feud. That, again, was in 1986 in Winnipeg. And what I remember most about that, first of all, was thank you, George. He allowed me, he kind of stepped aside and let me do the TV interview with Bruiser Brody while he took Bulldog Bob Brown, who salivated all over George during the interview. So I'm, I'm very <laughs> glad that George, George gave me uh, the Brody. But uh, the Winnipeg Arena, as I recall, sat maybe 13,000, 14,000 people. And I don't know that they had 700 in the building. Huh. Uh, it was it was it was pretty grim. Mm-hmm. But 
Yes, Brody and Brown, you know, true professionals. I, I know they went to a, a double countout and beat the hell out of each other. Um, but what happened from there, actually, that was the springboard that got me involved with the AWA. George and I decided we would have somebody critique our work that we had done for Tony Condello. And the guy that we wanted to critique it, of course, was Nick Bockwinkle. Yeah. So uh, we have Nick come over one afternoon to George's palatial estate in St. Paul, and we put on some of these tapes from Winnipeg, and, and Nick listened to the announcing, and his comment was, my God, if you guys can get this over, you know, this <laughs> kind of talent, you can do anything. Uh, which I guess was kind of a left-handed <laughs> compliment. But um, from there, you know, there, a, a couple of months went by, and Nick had obviously done me a good turn and put in the word for the with the AWA that I was looking for work, maybe doing some announcing, and he felt after hearing the Winnipeg tapes as, as atrocious as some of the talent was that, uh, that I could get the job done with with vernon greg mm-hmm. and now let's talk about how that offer when it when it did come about uh howard who approached you when did you get this call and boy this must have just been like one of those cloud nine moments when did when was it did the, it really it get cemented as far as you getting this job and your first assignment totally out of the blue uh because again it had been a period of months from the time that nick had seen the tape and you know i'm not hearing anything so i didn't think anything was going to come of it uh, I was working full time, forty hours a week at a at a day job at the time, and you know, one of my coworkers says you have a telephone call. He says it's Greg Ganya. Well, you know, I had no idea why Greg was calling because the only thing that I knew about uh, Greg outside of the interaction with him periodically over the years was that he used to get furious with us when we would cheer the heels <laughs> at the at the television taping. That was kind of, I figured, gosh, what did, what did I do now? You're the heat uh, magnet. Oh, are you kidding me? <laughs> and uh, so I I got on the phone and, you know, Greg introduced himself. Greg, nice to talk with you. And he said, I want to run something past you. He said, we're auditioning for a ring announcer to come out to Las Vegas and do the TV tapings with us on ESPN. Would you be interested in... I don't think he got the words out, and I said, I'm there. Nice. Um, it, it, it was pretty amazing because it came out of the blue. Again, this was going to be on ESPN, which was extraordinary at the time. Uh, talk about going from the pond to Lake Superior in one fell swoop as far as I was concerned. Mm-hmm. So uh, I went down, and I auditioned. I don't know who else actually went down there at the time. Maybe I was the only one, maybe not, but... Um, Shortly thereafter, I got the call that, uh, yeah, we want you to, to debut in Minneapolis for an ESPN taping, which was August 1st of 1987. And then from there, the next time I did TV with the AWA was at the Showboat in Vegas. Mm-hmm. And by the time you came on board in 1987 with the AWA as an announcer, the landscape of the wrestling world, man, this is the understatement of the decade and the century, had changed significantly. Of course, with McMahon expansion in full bloom. Uh, talk a little bit about that uh, changing at landscape of wrestling. And by the you know it, by the time you got into the American Wrestling Association, the, the glory days, uh, it wasn't quite a lot of uh, shine to it as it as it was say maybe two three even four or five years ago 
You know, it's really interesting that you say that because the decline, the AWA was still drawn pretty well in 85, 86. You know, of course, they ran Wrestle Rock in 1986. But over the next year, things were starting to, the wheels were coming off a little bit because by that time, Vince was probably five, you know, four or five years into the expansion and the takeover. So when you say that the landscape of wrestling changed it it most certainly did uh, even though the AWA had ESPN which was just an amazing thing to do for a wrestling company to get hooked up on a, on a network like that um, it was pretty obvious what was going on and that the AWA even though they may have still carved or had their own niche in the wrestling world now things had changed a little bit to the point where the AWA was kind of seen as a, not an also ran, but certainly not on the level with Vince McMahon. So yeah, when I, when I came on board, it really was transitioning. Um, and of course the AWA officially closed its doors about four years later, but you know, still you're on ESPN, you're at a casino in Las Vegas. You still have some major talent. So, you know, the glitz and the glamour was still there, but not nearly what it was a few years prior. Mm -hmm. I was going to lead up to another question about the atmosphere and like the morale scene was like in the locker room at that time for the AWA, considering, again, the WWF has been started this cherry picking process. If any of the territories got cherry picked, it was the AWA and it was still going on from, uh, you know, 84 up until, you know, damn near till the closing period for AWA. But in 87, what was the atmosphere like in the locker room, you know, considering the WWF had established a firm hold on the worldwide audience? It was tense. I mean, I, I have to say it. It was, uh, it was not always real comfortable. Vern was on edge a lot, and Greg was on edge a lot. If, if they had a good taping, they knew it. If they ran some good angles, they knew it. They were aware of it. But it was like, you know, Vince was the elephant in the room. And if things... I, I guess if things weren't going well, if a match didn't go well, if a worker in the ring was not performing up to par, I think Vern overreacted to it, mm -hmm. uh, up to and including myself. Uh, so it, it was just, it was a tense situation, uh, which was really kind of sad because for me, personally, wanting to work with the AWA all those years, to get into that atmosphere and that vibe was a little bit disheartening. By the same token, again, I had to tell myself, hey, you know what? This is the big time right now, so make the most of it. Mm -hmm. And you talk about Vern's uh, temperament uh, during these times. Uh, did any incidents uh, stand out uh, dealing with, with Vern that you can remember that you can kind of laugh at now? But at the time, it was, uh, you know, you're this new guy. I mean, you're familiar to the, to the AWA, but you're a new guy in a new position. And that had to rattle the bones a little bit when you have the boss kind of, you know, of course, he's already, uh, you know, on edge with Vince uh, on his heels. What was it like? What were some of these incidents uh, of dealing with Vern as a boss behind the scenes uh, as far as in regards to critiques of, of some of the work you did at the showboat and beyond with the AWA? You know, <laughs> well, there's an infamous incident, and uh, I've documented that uh, several times over the years, but, you know, you're right, you look back on it now, and I don't know if it's funny, but it, it certainly doesn't have the impact that it 
that it uh, did at the time. One thing I will say, Vern was always pretty good to me. Yeah. Uh, Greg was really respectful. Um, I, I know one time we were going to be flying out to Vegas. We're at the Minneapolis airport. And at, up to that point, all I had done was ring announcing. And I really wanted to do play-by-play. The ring announcing was great. Didn't like wearing a tuxedo. I don't think I've worn one since. I don't think that, you know, one fits anymore. <laughs> but um, I, I wanted to do the play-by-play. So I approached Vern at the Minneapolis airport, and I said, and just broached the idea to him. I said, what are the possibilities of me sitting in with Rod every once in a while? And Vern's reaction, he kind of chuckled, and he said, can I ask you, what makes you think that you can do color commentary better than Vern Gagne or Ray Stevens or Wahoo McDaniel? And I said, Vern, I'm not saying that at all, although, Glenn, I could have said because I do a better job than you do, Vern. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that, you don't want to start another fire here. This isn't you sitting at ringside. This is you with the, the boss man and the paycheck. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah, I, I, it wasn't like I was cheering for Bockwinkle at a TV taping. <laughs> um, so, I, so I just said, you know, Vern, I'm just putting it out there. If you, you know, if you ever get the notion, I'm ready, willing, and able. You know, as it turns out, they did utilize me probably a handful of times when I would go right from the ring to sit down along Rod, Rod Trongard at ringside and, and call matches. That was a big thrill. But um, the particular incident where I really felt the wrath of Burn, I, I should backtrack. I never personally saw Burn getting into anyone's face in the locker room area because Rod Trongard and I were kind of separated from, from the group. Mm-hmm. We were never hardened up to the angles that they were going to do on TV. Everything was kind of wing it. Um, the AWA preferred it that way. So when an incident happened, we would be surprised and it wouldn't be contrived enthusiasm. So uh, a lot of times I wasn't in the backstage area. Rod and I were already up front at the announce table. But uh, one particular night, uh, the late Larry Nelson, who was an AWA ring announcer and, you know, personality, loved Larry. Um, he had decided he didn't want to go out to Las Vegas anymore because the stress was too much for him. And so I go out there for the first time without Larry. And when Larry would be out there, he was kind of a, wore a lot of hats. He would warm up the crowd. He would do ringside interviews. He would sometimes sit in doing play-by-play and and uh, just just a little bit of everything. So I kind of took over the Larry Nelson role one night. And Greg had come to me in the locker room prior to the to that to the show, and he said, "Listen, at intermission, we're going to be announcing our next big card." here at the showboat and it's going to be a holiday card. And I, I don't remember if it was a Thanksgiving show or a Christmas show that they were going to be promoting. And he said, I want you to read them the lineup and really get it over, really be enthused. We'll do that during intermission, during the tape change. I said, that that's great. So we've done about an hour, hour and a half, uh, because usually those tapings were pretty grueling. We would do anywhere from, four to five weeks of TV at one time. So you're, you're, you're talking, you know, 20, 25 matches. So comes time for intermission. 
And I'm at the announce table, and I announce, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to be taking our intermission break right now, tape change. But I want to let you know about the next big card here at the Showboat Hotel. And I start going through the lineup, and I'm announcing this match and that match, and now it's the big finale, Glenn. And I said, and ladies and gentlemen, returning for the first time in many months, Shawn Michaels. And, you know, now the crowd starts, to, they're getting all worked up. Oh, yeah. Marty Jannetty. Ho-ho! Boom! You know, the Midnight Rockers, ladies and gentlemen. Hell! The place just erupted. Mm-hmm. And I said, that's coming up. You know, tickets are available in the lobby tonight. Well, I get done with the announcement, and I'm sitting at the table, and I look over at Vern. Vern is sitting right next to me, and his face is as red as a lobster. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, what? And he he says, God damn you. (laughs) What are you talking about? And this is, again, fans are walking past us. Rod Frontgard sheepishly gets up from the announce table and walks away because he knows what's coming. And Vern says, you know, you're the authority figure around here. I said, what do you mean by that? He says, when you make an announcement, you get into the middle of the damn ring. You don't do it here from the announce table. I says, okay, you know, Vern, that, that's fine. Mm-hmm. He said, not only that, why did you have to call them Shawn Michaels and Marty Jannetty? Why didn't you just say the Midnight Rockers? And I was just incredulous. I said, said, Vern, did did we hear the same pop from the crowd? You know, they they know who, I called them by their names. Vern takes off his glasses, throws them on the announce table. They bounce off the announce table onto the floor of the showboat. One of the lenses pops out of his glasses he grabs me by the lapels of my rented Skeffington tuxedo, and he says, it's guys like you that have cost me millions over the years. Wow. Yes. Yeah. So let that be a little, first of all, you know, I'll, I'll give you the follow-up after, but let that be a lesson to you, Glenn Broggett, if you ever, ever have the occasion to introduce the Midnight Rockers, don't call them by Shawn Michaels and Marty Jannetty because you will cost the promotion millions. I'll put that in the I'm back done. of my mind, man. That was the undoing of the AWA. I, I, I systematically, I killed the territory because I introduced Shawn Michaels and Marty Jannetty. Anyway, <laughs> so I get, yeah, where's that on the McMahon doc? <laughs> <laughs> Glenn, I, I got back to Minneapolis and I'm thinking to myself, God, what do I do now? Do I want to go back? This is humiliating. And and by the way, I mean, after Vern went through his tirade, of course, that night, I had another hour and a half to do with a smile on my face oh, at the snowball oh. talking about the great AWA wrestling action. Mm-hmm. But uh, called Bachwinkle. And I said, and by this time, Nick had already gone to the WWF as, an, as a road agent. He was gone. Mm-hmm. And he said, he says, you know what? He's really not yelling at you. And this kind of goes back to the point I made originally about the tension. He said, Vern is yelling at everybody. I've heard it from the other guys. He's just that stressed with the competition, the headache, the tension, the worry. Uh, the empire is kind of crumbling. And he says, as far as I know, he said, uh, Jack Lance and I are probably the only two guys that Vern never yelled at over the years. He said, so here's what you do, Mick. You call Vern, and you tell him to shove the AWA up his ass. <laughs> <laughs> what? 
wait a minute. I said, Nick, you don't understand something. I said, you're, you're set. You're yeah. working in New York. I need this gig. He said, well, you know, you, you just you can't let Vern bully you that way. So I wrote Vern a letter, and I said, Vern, you're the boss. You have every right to tell me anything you want to do, but that was really embarrassing for me. Uh, could you maybe next time, if there's an issue, just take me in the back, talk to me about it, and let's not do this in public. Mm-hmm. So it's about three weeks before the next AWA taping. I get a phone call at work again, pick up the phone. Gosh, Vern got ya. I'm yelling at you again. <laughs> and they go, oh, God, no, please, not, not at my day job. And then he chuckled. And he said, Mick, did I really do that? I said, Vern, you did. He said, I, I'm sorry. He says, it had nothing to do with you. He said, I'll see you in a few weeks. So that was patched up. And really, that basically underscores exactly what I said. He was so tense, the temper would flare. And then after the fact, he didn't even remember doing it. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. Just a, a, fit, a fit of anger. I'm going to ask yeah, you. A little, oh, go ahead. Okay. Even, no, I was just going to say a little bit, but at least temporarily that was smoothed over. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I want to talk to, we, we glossed over it a little bit, but we, let's talk about the AWA's roster at that point in 1987, which was still a pretty solid roster. I mean, I still remember watching some of these guys uh, that were coming up and wrestling for Vern's company here, uh, not only on the TV and on some of the house shows. What names stand out to you, though, as uh, some of the stars of the promotion during that time period? Well, again, remember, I was there, I mean, it was a very short time, but in 87, um, Tommy Rich was there, Adrian Adonis was there, uh, he had brought in Jerry Lawler and Bill Dundee as his tag team champions, uh, Paul Heyman was uh, really in his element as Paul E. Dangerously brought in the original Midnight Express, Randy Rose and Dennis Condry, Larry Sabisco was there, uh, Jerry Blackwell I mean, he really, I mean, the, the, you know, Greg Gagne, Kurt Hennig, uh, Kurt was just starting to blossom. Oh. So the roster was rock solid. But again, the perception on the national level was, well, you don't have Hulk Hogan. You don't have Roddy Piper, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. So even though the roster was good, it wasn't necessarily perceived nationally as uh, stellar, let's say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was less on the cartoon element and was still what Vern wanted. His vision was of straight-ahead pro wrestling, and sometimes that could have been a knock on some of his stuff through the years in regards to, uh, I mean, there wasn't, like today, when we have storylines for everything. I mean, Vern, there was just a lot of wrestling with a couple of big blow-off feuds here and there. It was a, just a whole different animal that was starting to kind of change around that time, too, for Vern. So uh, the times were starting to go ahead while Vern was, you know, kind of spinning his wheels at some points. No question about it. And Vern was such a purist as far as wrestling is concerned. You know, it's funny. Even a guy like Mad Dog Rashan, when people think of the character of Mad Dog Rashan, still, this was an Olympic wrestler. I mean, Mad Dog Rashan was a, was a talented wrestler. Uh, he brings in, you know, uh, in 1970 or whatever, he bring, he's bringing in Ken Patera, 1972, again with an amateur background. So Vern always wanted the perception, the public perception to, to be, yes, these are athletes. They're not just, like you said, Glenn, cartoon characters. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we've talked, you, t- you just mentioned Kurt Henning, and boy, 87 was a year. It was the Kurt Henning coming out party as, as far as pro wrestling goes. Uh, you were there when Kurt Henning started his transformation to a heel when he became cool Kurt Henning. Uh, what are right. your memories of, of Kurt? Because he, not only did he um, he held the AWA title, the new attitude, but I think with it became a degree of confidence for a guy to carry the company on his shoulders up until uh, the loss to Lawler the, 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 that next May. That was absolutely amazing, the transformation of Kurt Hennig, because, you know, uh, uh, Kurt, Kurt had been around a long time. You know, even by then he had been in the business a half a dozen years or better and, uh, you know, we had the run with Scott Hall in 1985-86 as the AWA Tag Team Champions um, as, a, as a baby face. You know, moderate success. You know, he was relatively popular. Mm-hmm. But when we made the decision to turn Kurt heel, something happened in him. And I don't know if it's because his dad, Larry, was such a gifted heel all those years but I noticed it right away, and by the time I started working with Kurt in 1987, when he was the AWA champ, you could already see it. And like you said, it was a confidence, something, a, a switch went on. Mm-hmm. And um, it was just amazing to see how fast, how really good he got, and how quickly he got there. Yeah, and, and what was also interesting he and I had a conversation one night in Vegas, and I will never forget this because I remember how surprised I was. It was after one of the shows, and I don't remember what angle they did, but I thought it was a pretty terrific show. And, and Kurt was sitting downstairs in the bar area, and he seemed to be a little bit, yeah, you know, not, not kind of flatlining, not in the greatest mood. So we talked a little bit, and I said, how you doing? He said, ah, you know what? He says, I, I, I just, I'm getting a little... A little stale, I think. I, I, I don't know how much longer I want to be here. And my thought is, here's a guy who's on top. He's the AWA champion. At that point, he'd really reached the pinnacle of his career up to that point. And he's over like a son of a gun on ESPN, carrying the company, like you said, on his shoulders, and yet he wasn't happy. So, you know, I know he was financially, he was doing okay, but again, maybe it was the atmosphere in the locker room. Everything wasn't just copacetic. So already back then, Kurt has already kind of given out feelers that, you know, I'm not going to be here for the long haul. Well, the rest is history. Nobody could have done the Mr. Perfect better than he did. And in my estimation, I've said this many times to me, Kurt Hennig was the best performer of the era when he was, Mr. Perfect in the WWE, I don't think there was a better performer on the planet than Kurt Hennig. Mm, I definitely uh, am in agreement with you on that, Mick. All told, uh, your AWA tenure, your TV tenure with uh, with Vern lasted uh, just for a period of months. But yet, you know what? You know, For that period of months, it seems like uh, through the years, you're often remembered as the AWA announcer through uh, whether it would be uh, ESPN Classic started rolling out the AWA reruns uh, eight, nine years ago. And people remember when they think of you, though, Mick, it seems like and, and, and the same thing for me. What I remember to you was AWA announcer. Why do you think that is? I, I think it's because of um, I think I came in as the era was changing. You know, there's not a lot of old school wrestling fans or announcers 
that are still around. I mean, there's some, Glenn, but wrestling was always a transient kind of a business. It would ebb and flow in its popularity. And you know, not everybody was a wrestling fan forever. So I think when I came on, it was at a period when wrestling, the, the, uh, wrestling on television, you know, the cable had exploded and everything else. So there was more of an awareness of everybody that was out there doing whatever they were doing for the different promotions. So now my face is on ESPN. So even if it was just for a period of, you know, a matter of months, still it was a different era. It was a different generation of fans coming in. So a lot of the fans that are around today can still remember back to the late 80s, 90s. You go back to the 1970s, not so many. But I, I think it was a timing thing. I think it was being on ESPN. And I think a part of it, too, may be just because I lived in Minneapolis, anybody who knew me all those years before I started working for the AWA knew I was an AWA guy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the fact is, unlike the 70s and the 60s, I mean, there's not a lot of tape from the, from those tele if at all from the televisions of right. those times. So a lot of the people who want to go back to maybe get a, a taste of what Marty O'Neill was like, uh, or even the early Mean Gene stuff, you can't really find it. It's in dribs and drabs. Where the '80s, it was fully integrated. As yes, you save your stuff for reruns or later playback. It was just kind of a different animal as far as getting that exposure or for people's memories too. I mean, we don't have as many options, I guess, for guys that weren't born and around and alive and aware during those 70s than we do with the 80s as far as them finally getting the wherewithal to save save the uh, the footage. You know, it's interesting, too. I mean, th there's a few early 70s AWA uh, clips or, or videos on YouTube. Um, there are very few 1960s AWA clips, maybe a handful. I know there's a, there's a couple of TV tapings black and white from the middle 60s but other than that you try to go back and look at awa footage from that era from the late 50s 60s late 60s it's gone there is absolutely none and that's because you know you alluded to it uh they would just tape over they'd mm -hmm. use a videotape and they'd tape it over there was nothing that was preserved for history from that awa era which is so sad because Fans never got to see Larry Hennig and Harley Race teaming up on, on video. Uh, they never got to see the days of Dr. X wrestling against the Crusher, things like that. Uh, the Kalmakoff brothers, whoever it was. So it's really sad. That portion of wrestling history, um, it's lost. It's gone. Mm -hmm. Now talk about your, some of the details, as much as you want to talk about it, of your departure from the AWA. Um. Very simple, really. Um, the AWA, and this was after the, the whole incident with Vern, I, I still came back for another shot. Um, but then I want to say maybe January-ish of 1988, the AWA was going to be doing a TV taping in Minot, North Dakota. Mm -hmm. And uh, first of all, I'm still working full-time uh, at my full-time job. So to leave early, when, when we were doing the showboat tapings, I could leave on a Saturday morning. We'd fly out early. Didn't affect my full-time job at all. This AWA taping was going to be, I think, on a Friday, if I'm not mistaken, plus the fact that it was a horrendous blizzard uh, in Minot and into Minnesota, and I couldn't get the time off work, couldn't go to the taping. 
they brought in Lee Marshall to substitute for me, and I don't know how they hooked up with Lee. It may have been through Eric Bischoff. Not positive about that. Never really asked. But uh, Lee substituted for me for the taping that I didn't make. Um, February of 1988, there's a show at the Minneapolis Auditorium, which happened to be the last AWA show in that building. And I approached Vern and I said, you know, sorry, I missed the last taping. And I assume I'm coming back for the next one in a couple of weeks. And Vern wasn't angry. He just said, you know what? I got to ask you something. Is it worth it to you to pay your own transportation, your own flight fare, to come out to Las Vegas and appear with us on ESPN? And I didn't bat an eye, and I said, no, it isn't. And, and it really wasn't. I mean, at that point, I just thought, you know what? If you can't even pay my trans, you're not paying me that much in Las Vegas. I'm going to lose on this deal. Mm-hmm. You know, by the time I pay my air ticket and then my hotel, if that's going to happen, and then you, what your payoff is for me, I'm going to lose on the deal. So I just said, no, Vern, it's not. And that was the end of it. Lee Marshall basically uh, was the guy that took my place after I left the AWA. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't that much longer, though. You did get a second life. You didn't just, you know, put the tail between your leg and stop getting involved with pro wrestling. No, no. And you ended up kind of amping it up as far as working for various companies through the years from that point. And you also started a legendary program block uh, with Saturday Night at Ringside. Did the AWA, once you got this Saturday Night at Ringside established, did the AWA harbor any sort of ill feeling after you got something off the ground without them? You know, not really. Um, after Vern and I had come to that agreement that I, you know, we were going to part ways, um, and I got the gig at SNR, I wrote the office a letter and I basically said, all right, here's the deal. I've been offered this position and we're going to be carrying a wrestling block and not featuring any one promotion. We're going to be, uh, focusing a lot on the local talent we're going to have local promotions like Eddie Sharkey's group or whatever on television promoting their shows when they have them. I'm reaching out to you right now. I will be more than happy to continue to work on behalf of the AWA. My loyalty is to you. Anytime you want to send down a wrestler, a promoter, anytime you want to promote a show, my hand is out to you. I will be happy to do that. So they actually did take advantage of that, and they worked alongside me anytime they had a show. Uh, they would graciously send down a guest, Pat Tanaka, Brad Ringens, Wayne Bloom, Mike Enos, whoever it might be back in the day, Wahoo McDaniel, Ray Stevens. They kept working with me, and uh, I mean, why not? You know, it was a local vehicle, and, uh, and they were very supportive. We got along very well. And uh, no, they didn't harbor, harbor any ill will at all. The only, the only national promotion that did not want to work with SNR was WWF. Okay. Oh, AWA wasn't soon. It wasn't very long after the basically AWA uh, shut its doors. Now, how did you personally feel as a long time, not just working for Vern, but just a long time? You put so much time into being an AWA devotee. 
What was that like personally for you when when it got to the point where Vern said, hey, I'm throwing it up. I'm shutting the doors. It's been good, but we can't do this any longer. What were you, what, what did that mean to you all those years of, of, of watching and having the AWA around that it just became something that was gone? Did you feel like it was taken for granted or do you feel like it, what, what are your thoughts? I mean, what was going through your mind when the AWA finally shut its doors and when you finally heard talk about that it was going going gone? It was horrible. You know, for a long-time fan like me, aside from working with the AWA and working with Vern, in the middle 80s, those of us who love the AWA were hoping against hope that maybe the WWF juggernaut would hit a roadblock, you know, hit a pothole, and Vern would be able to stick around, and the AWA would continue to thrive. But, you know, the longer time went on, that became painfully obvious that wasn't going to happen. And, and the reasons are many. You know, you can speculate for a million years about what Vern could have done differently. Mm-hmm. And if he would have hung on to Hulk Hogan, would that have made a difference, et cetera, et cetera. You know, first of all, absolutely not in my estimation. No, it wouldn't have made any difference. Vince was going to do what he was going to do, whether or not it was Hulk Hogan, Roddy Piper, Sergeant Slaughter, somebody. He had the vision to use cable television to its to its fullest to go national none of the other promotions could stick could stick around mm-hmm. and of course when Vern tried working with the other promotions they couldn't do it they were button heads in fighting among themselves while Vince was picking up the pieces the only thing Glenn that I can liken the, the closing of the AWA to it's like when Harmon Killebrew retired for me mm-hmm. or uh, as a Beatles fan, the death of John Lennon, it, it's like a, a piece of your childhood, a piece of your life, a good part of my life uh, was gone. And, you know, realizing, yeah, it's only business or what have you. Yeah, it, it, it was painful. And, uh, you know, life went on. I was fortunate because I stayed involved in the wrestling business. But again, to this day, outside of Saturday Night at Ringside, my favorite memories in the you know 50 years that i've been a wrestling fan uh were the awa years and the glory days Mm -hmm. it looks like uh, we have a little bit of time left here not much left in the time uh yeah basically the time limit's almost here i want to talk one more time let's wrap this up uh today uh mr karsh uh, about let's talk a little bit about the big show tonight. Uh, let's talk about it again. Steel Domain Wrestling at the American Legion Auditorium at sixty five zero one Portland Avenue in Richfield. Let's get one more push in before uh, uh, we 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 part as uh, friends today. Well, I appreciate that. Um, and again, doors open at six o'clock. Bell time is seven. Triple main event. We got the Portland Avenue Brawl. We have Mitch Paradise going against Jay Bradley. We have the ladies, Malia Hosaka and Stacey Shadows. Uh, triple main event also on the card. Just want to uh, mention the other matches. Uh, a new masked man in the uh, Steel Domain Wrestling promotion. Very talented. Kind of reminds you of the Patriot, Del Wilkes. Uh, he's called Mr. USA, Ulysses Samuel Adams. Now that's he's a name. Be taking, taking on a guy by the name of Rick McCarthy who's one half of the Steel Domain Tag Team Champions, along with uh, Chadwick Wentworth III. Brick is a tremendous talent. I call him the modern-day uh, Dick Murdoch. Uh, just, that'll be a great, great matchup. Uh, we've got A.J. Smooth teaming up with his old nemesis, Ryan Slade, 
to take on the Golden Idols Temple of Terror, Aaron Corbin and Ricky Love. And then the Disco King, downtown Petey Brown, will be meeting the Tomahawk Kid on the card. So all in all, it's a great show. So proud of Steel Domain Wrestling. We think it's the best thing going on the independent scene. And uh, nobody ever leaves the building without saying, you know what, that was one hell of a show. We tape it for the internet, so we urge everybody to come on out and uh, make a lot of noise tonight. Doors open at 6, bell time at 7, American Legion Auditorium in Richfield. Mick Karsh, boy, I got to get you back on here in Wrestling Memories uh, in 2018. Just to have you back on to share some of your stories of working various Midwest indies through the years. But thank you so, so much for taking time out to not only inform us about the latest Steel Domain Wrestling card, but to take us back in time to discuss your run with the AWA in 1987. The door is always open, my friend, for you to come back on. You know that. I really appreciate it, Glenn, and I'll be sure to check George's schedule, make sure he's not available, and then I will be. (laughs) Will do.